So last Sunday we, we found out that that uh, Jesus is the champion of the traitor as we looked at the conversation that Jesus had with Peter. Today we're going to look at how Jesus is the champion of the broken and we're going to look at Jesus's conversation with Mary Magdalene. We're going to be rooted in John 20 so if you want to turn there you can. It's the passage of scripture that Kevin read earlier. Um, Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is the champion of the doubter as we look at a conversation that Jesus had with Thomas. And then we're going to, the, the, on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at how Jesus is the champion of the outcast. We'll be looking at a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. So, let me pray, and then we will get into our lesson. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our champion, and we are so glad that you are that. We're so glad that you are the resurrected king that is resurrecting us and making us come alive, um, turning us into the people you've always desired for us to be. We praise you for that. We thank you for your grace that enables all of that to happen. Lord, as we look at this passage involving your conversation with Mary Magdalene, Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us, that we would come to a greater appreciation of who you are and what you've done and what you've promised uh, to do in the future. So, Lord, help us to be attentive to your words, your words of life this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, let me, let me read this passage again. We're going to, we're going to read this passage again. So it's John 20 verses 1 through 18. They're on the screen. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, you can follow along there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Very cool passage. Um, Here are the three things we're going to focus on from this passage. The first one is this. The gospel is a message about grace. So the gospel is a message about grace. The gospel is personal. Gospel is personal. And the gospel is grounded in evidence. The gospel is grounded in evidence. So let's look at the first one. The gospel is a message about grace. I've told you this story before, but I really think it's worth repeating because it's such a good story. And here it is again for all of you. As it is told by Philip Yancey, we are currently doing a study by Philip Yancey in adult Sunday school, and it's titled Vanishing Grace. Just a plug for that. It's been fantastic. We encourage you to come at 930, 9.30. Yes. So this is what he wrote in a Christianity Today article back in 1997. He wrote this. During a British conference on comparative religions, Experts from around the world were discussing whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation. Other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, only, again other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked, and he heard in a reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. In his forthright manner, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy, it's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law. Each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Grace. And that is why Philip Yancey wrote this study that we're studying in adult Sunday school, Vanishing Grace. He's concerned. If grace is one of the main things that distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions of the world. We as Christians can't lose that. We can't lose sight of it, especially in how we engage with other people, right? So the whole storyline of the Bible is really this message of grace. It's not about man, you know, working themselves up the ladder to God. It's this amazing true story of this God who loved broken humanity so much that he was willing to come down (laughs) to rescue 
the broken humanity, to rescue them from their hurts, from their pain, from their sin, from their guilt, their pride, their greed, and their shame. Humanity didn't deserve it. They deserved the, the complete opposite of what God gave us. That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. And God just saturates and he permeates the Bible with stories of grace. And what we have in our hands today, John 20 is no different. The story about Mary is just a message about grace. How so? Well, we see God's grace in his conversation with Mary in two ways. We see him extend grace through the healing of Mary and also in the choosing of Mary. So in the healing of Mary and in, in the choosing of Mary. Let me talk about the healing of Mary first. So what do we know about Mary Magdalene? Who was she? You know, some have connected her to the woman that Jesus saved from stoning after she had been taken in, taken in adult, adultery. Um, some people connect Mary Magdalene to uh, the sinful wo- woman that washed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. But as far as I can tell, the Bible doesn't make these connections. She's not these women. She's not. She's not a prostitute. She's not an adulterer. Nor was she married to Jesus like some people try and say today, right? That, that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus in some way. That's not true either. So what does the Bible tell us about her? Well, Luke 8, 1 through 4 tells us this. And we get to see who the real Mary Magdalene was. Now, it came to pass afterward that he, meaning Jesus, went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities... Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So, this passage tells us that at one point, Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Luke says that she was possessed by seven demons. Now, seven is a symbolic number that's used in the Bible, and it often means completeness. So what Luke is telling us is that Mary was completely and utterly possessed by these demons, ruled by these demons that were inside of her. Her condition was an extremely serious condition. If you read about demon-possessed people in the Bible, here here are some of their characteristics and the behaviors that they exhibit. So some of them uh, just talk to themselves. Some uh, some scream out um, just random things. We find some that are demon-possessed in the Bible cutting themselves. Some are convulsing. Some are blind. Some are paralyzed. Some are mute. Some have a combination of these things. That was Mary Magdalene. She would have been that person that everybody avoided. 
You saw, if you saw her from afar, you would do everything you could to get out of this crazy woman's way. If your kids were with you, you would cover their eyes. You wouldn't want them to see somebody like this. This person was nuts. She was nuts. She was crazy, right? That's what we say. I don't, yeah. So that's how people would have viewed her. She was totally ruled by these forces inside of her that were more powerful than her. The pain she must have felt. The shame she must have felt. She was an untouchable, a social outcast. I'm sure many people believe she wasn't even worth the breath that she breathed. The rejection she must have experienced. The inner turmoil, the complete brokenness that she was in. But one day, this man comes along. And the man doesn't just look the other way, but instead he looks at her. He doesn't just look at her, but he draws near. He doesn't just draw near, but he actually touches her. I wonder when the last time it was that she was touched by another human being. And this man that touched her, touched her with a healing touch. He had the power to remove these demons out of her. You see the grace in Mary's life that Jesus extended to her? She didn't deserve it. Jesus sought her out. Jesus showed her undeserved healing and grace based on that healing. So under undeserved grace based on that healing. And Mary's, Mary's story is a story that you need to hear. I need to hear. Because it tells us no matter how broken we are, God can put us back together again. Right? No matter how sinful, no matter how flawed, no matter what our past is. God can make us a new creation. There's no hurt that he can't heal. There's no situation that's beyond God's power to redeem. There's no sin he can't forgive. Jesus is the champion of the broken, and you need to hear this because I almost guarantee that there are people in this room this morning, you are a prisoner of your past. You are riddled with shame and guilt, and it controls you. And you need to know that God's grace is there for you. He can set you free from your past. That shame and guilt, it needs to go. It needs to go. Jesus has forgiven you. Perhaps you're here today and you just think that, you know, I messed up too badly. There's just no way that God can love me. There's no way that he can forgive me, that you're too far gone. I'm sure that people thought that about Mary. I'm sure they did. And you just need to know you're not. You need to, you need to know that Jesus' arms are open wide to you. And you need to come and you need to receive that grace this morning. Cry out to him. 
ask for his forgiveness, and then know you're forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No more shame, no more guilt. If maybe you're here this morning and you're really struggling, you're really going through a really difficult situation right now. I also want you to hear and be encouraged by the fact that Jesus knows you're hurt. He wants you to cry out to him. He will see you through. He wants you to ask him for his strength, his wisdom, his guidance. He wants you to cling to him. He will make a way. You need to know that. And for those of you who have experienced Jesus' healing touch, I encourage you this morning to ask, how are you responding to that grace? How are you responding to that grace? Do you know what Mary's response was to Jesus' grace? Her life became completely devoted to Jesus. You know, for Mary, Jesus gave her, her life, and so she figured, hey, I owe my life to him, right? She, what Mary ended up doing is she ended up traveling with Jesus throughout his ministry, traveled with him the whole time. And when many of the other disciples deserted him, deserted Jesus, Mary was there even through the crucifixion. And then after Jesus was killed, it was Mary who was concerned about caring for Jesus' dead body. Luke 8.3 also tells us that Mary financially supported Jesus' ministry. You see, Mary responded to Jesus' gracious deliverance of her with gracious generosity. Do you know... This is how you know you really understand or at least have a a solid grasp on the gospel is how generous are you? You know that you have a decent grip on the grace of Christ that the gospel proclaims when you are in turn generous, when you're generous with your time, generous with your money. Generous with your forgiveness, patient with other people, their failings and their shortcomings. Like Mary, does your life reflect that you understand this amazing grace that you have received? You, we see God's grace in Mary's healing. We also see Mary, or God's grace in Mary's, in the choosing of Mary by Jesus. So we see it in the healing, and then we see it in the choosing of Mary by Jesus. So what did Jesus choose Mary for? Well, Jesus chose Mary to be the very first person to see the resurrected Christ, to know about it, and to see him. Can you imagine? The most important event in the history of the world Mary got to see it first. The former demon-possessed, mentally deranged woman got to see the resurrected Christ first. Jesus, he could have picked the most powerful person in the world. 
He could have appeared to anybody. And he picks little old insignificant Mary Magdalene. One of the least of these becomes the first ambassador of Christ. Becomes an apostle to the apostles. The first Christian, Mary Magdalene. How would you like to have that on your resume? Do you see what Jesus is communicating here? Do you see what he is saying in this story of grace? Salvation is not based on your talents. It's not based on your performance, your intellect. It's not based on your gender, your race, your wealth, your social standing, your achievement, your good looks, or your good works. Salvation is based on his work, and it is given as a gift of grace. You don't earn it, you simply receive it by throwing yourself on Jesus like Mary did. Do you see that? He has done everything to accomplish salvation for you. He's lived the life you should have lived. He's died the death you should have died in your place for your healing. You might be here today and you might still be operating with the belief that when you stand before God, somehow your good works are going to outweigh your sin and God is going to accept you. And the Bible repeatedly teaches that that is not true, that there's no amount of good we can do to cover our sin and make us acceptable in God's sight. And I don't want anybody here under that assumption because I don't want anybody here to stand before Jesus one day and find out that that is utterly not true. And so I ask you this morning, have you trusted not in yourself but in Christ's work on your behalf to make you acceptable to God? Have you thrown yourself on Jesus and his work the way that Mary did. You see, the gospel is a message about grace. In this passage, we also learn that the gospel is personal because God is a personal God. And you know what? For us Christians, I think this, we, or we, are, we are so familiar with this that we lose the awe of this fact that God is, the gospel is personal. I'm, I'm going through a uh, podcast, and it's a university class on philosophy, and it's amazing how many different uh, worldviews view God or the gods as this impersonal force, this prime mover that just kind of sustains things, but yet is really just distant from the world. But the gospel tells us something completely different. Check out that Jesus didn't write on a billboard, hey, I'm, I'm alive, and hope that somehow Mary would come across that billboard and, and recognize it. He didn't send her an email. He didn't Facebook message her. Right? He didn't use social media. to let. He came to her one-on-one. And then notice how gentle Jesus was with Mary. Look at how he engaged her. He didn't say, hey, buck up. Enough of the waterworks, Mary. Get it together. Right? He says, woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Tim Keller on this exchange, he writes this, Counselors know that it is not enough to simply tell people how to live. Asking questions helps the person to recognize their errors, to discover and embrace truth from their hearts. The questions of Jesus are similar. Why are you crying? Is really a gentle rebuke to Mary, a call to wake up. Who is it you are looking for? Is a more penetrating invitation to, as commentator D.A. Carson writes on this verse, widen her horizons and to recognize that grand as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was still far too small. And of course, Mary in her grief and panic over where Jesus' body was at, because you just need to know that for the Jewish people, a proper burial was like a huge, huge thing. An improper burial would lead to a curse being on the land. And so this is where, I mean, you got to find Jesus' body, right? And so in her panic and in her concern over Jesus' body, she struggles to answer Jesus' question. And then it appears as if, she saw, well, we know that she saw angels, right? She saw these angels probably as she was trying to think of how to answer Jesus' question. And then Jesus appears behind Mary Magdalene because she has to turn around to see Jesus. So Mary is facing where Jesus' body was, and that's where the angels are. And then she has to turn to Look at Jesus. And once she turned and looked at him, she mistook mistook, mistook, mistook Jesus for the gardener, right? And you could see how she could do this. If you're turned and you're looking at where Jesus was laying, where he had been, You hear somebody asking you questions. The last thing you're thinking in your mind is Jesus being resurrected. The last time you saw Jesus, he was a bloody, mangled mess, unrecognizable. And so you turn and you see a man and you turn back to where you were looking. You could see how the only thing she would have been thinking, it must be the gardener, right? Um, resurrection was just not on her radar. And then as she turns back, she hears the words Mary, or the word, the name Mary. He didn't call her Mrs. Magdalene, right? He used her first name because that's what friends do. That's personal. And that's when Mary knew it was him. She recognized Jesus' voice saying her name. God is a personal God. He comes to us personally. He's not this impersonal force that is like a clock or a watchmaker that just winds up the clock, creates the clock, winds it up, and then lets it go and is removed from it. God is a person. He can be known. He has feelings. And he pursues us, and he wants a relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. 
God is a person who knows us. He understands our needs, our desires. And he's a person that deals with us individually and personally. And I think that the reason, one of the reasons that Jer- uh, Jesus went to Mary was because he knew how broken up inside she was over all of this. He knew what she was dealing with personally. And so that's why he went to relieve this pain. It appeared to her to relieve this pain that she was experiencing. Jesus knows what you need as an individual. And if you're a Christian, if you've already placed your trust in Jesus, I want you to think about how Jesus has personally dealt with you. That he knew exactly what you needed, when you needed it, to come to faith in him. He knew what barriers were in your heart and needed to be removed. And so he worked in your circumstances. He put people in your path to bring you to a saving faith in him. To draw you to his heart. Praise him for that. Praise him that he worked individually and specifically in a custom-made way for you. If you have not come to faith in Christ, do you see how God is working specifically to draw you to his heart? You're here this morning. You're hearing this message. No doubt he's placing people in your path. No doubt he is creating circumstances in your life or allowing circumstances in your life to draw you to himself. Every night we have sung to our boys of their lives. Um, Even before when they were in the womb, we were singing to Mary's belly, he knows your name. He knows your every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he sees you when you call. Yesterday, or two days ago, we were talking about this with with Isaiah, and he said, oh, that's that's about Jesus knowing us and loving us? We were like, how did you not get that? Major parent fail. We've been singing this every night of your five years of your little life, and you don't know? Surely he knows. I hope so. He knows now. All right. So let's look at uh, a little more of an aspect of his personal, of how Jesus is, the gospel is personal. So check this out. There's this confusing part in this passage, right, where Jesus you know, Mary re- understands that it's Jesus talking to her, and Jesus goes, and he, or Mary goes to Jesus and, and just takes hold of him. And, and Jesus says to Mary, he, he tells her this in John twenty seventeen, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. This just seems mean, doesn't it? Like on Jesus' part, here this lady is in such deep grief over what has happened. And he says, and she goes and gives him like a hug. And he, and he says, don't cling to me. Like, here she's thought this, her best friend is gone forever. And now she's so excited she can't help but squeeze him. But don't cling to me. And on the surface, this appears harsh, but it wasn't. And here's why it wasn't. 
uh, Jesus to prepare his disciples for his death, he was telling them this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, why on earth would Jesus be telling his disciples, hey, it's to your advantage that I go away? Well, if you keep reading in that same verse, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then Jesus went on to tell them what this helper would do for them. In John 16, 12, and 13, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. You see what Jesus was doing? He was saying to Mary, like, hey, I must go to the Father because when I do, my spirit's going to come and live inside of you. Mary, I'm really not leaving you. Actually, I'm going to be with you in even a more personal way. My very spirit is going to take up residence in your heart. And so that way, no matter where you go, because when Jesus was in the body, before his resurrection and just after his resurrection, he was limited to being in one place at one time. But he goes to the right hand of the Father. He sends the right hand of the Father. He sends his spirit. And now wherever Mary goes, Jesus will be exactly right there with her. And, of course, nine days after Mary has this conversation with Jesus, the spirit does come on the day of Pentecost, and it fills the disciples. Again, do you see the personal nature of the gospel and who God is? He's a personal God. And finally, the gospel message is grounded in evidence. And I'll try and cover this just very quickly here. But do we as Christians, or to come to faith in Christ, do we just need to turn off our brains and just accept this story? Do we need to just check our brains at the door in order to be a Christian and just believe and just kind of have this blind faith? Is there any actual evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Let me say first that biblical faith is not blind faith. It's not deciding that something is true without considering the evidence. Here's a great definition of what true biblical faith is. It is reason, trust, in light of the evidence. God, he wants us to love him with all of our minds, not just all of our hearts, all of our minds. And he wants us to draw conclusions based on evidence. And here in this passage, we have, there's, there's multiple pieces of evidence here, but I want to highlight two, that the resurrection is true. The first one is this. Some people say that Jesus' disciples, they must have been just eagerly expecting the resurrection. And so if they just even got a little glimpse of what they thought was Jesus alive, they would have been gullible and believed it and then passed it on to other people that were hoping for the same thing. And it would have spread like wildfire. But John 29, it tells us that wasn't the case. 
Peter and John, when they found out that Jesus was missing, the verse says that they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You know, Jesus had told them that he would rise. But this never connected with his disciples. It just didn't. And you know why it never connected with them? Because although some Jews believed that there would be a resurrection of some sort at the end of history, none of them had any concept at all. There was no room in their worldview for the resurrection of one man in the middle of history. They had no concept of that. Neither did the Greeks nor the Romans. It was on nobody's radar. If they were really anticipating Jesus' resurrection, they would have been hanging out at the tomb. But they weren't. They weren't. They weren't. It wasn't even a blip on their radar screen that Jesus would come back from the dead. Nobody does that. Right? And so... If when Jesus died, you need to know, like, for them, he was just another failed Messiah. Do you know that there were a number of Jewish men that had come along before Jesus and had claimed to be God's anointed king that would rescue the the nation of Israel from pagan Roman rule? There were a number of them that came along that claimed to be the Messiah. And do you know what happened to every single one of them? They were killed by the Romans. They were all killed. And so when Jesus was killed, they had thought, just another failed Messiah. We put our life savings on the wrong horse in this race. He's not who we thought he was. Now, with that mindset that these disciples had, can you imagine what it would have taken for them to actually believe that Jesus was alive? extraordinary like evidence that he was alive to change their total to to even believe something that wasn't even in their minds and that's why when the woman uh, told the men about the empty tomb and and about the resurrection in Luke 24 11 uh, well in Luke 24 Luke 24 11 informs us that the men felt this way. Their words, the women's words, seem like idle tales, and they did not believe them. The the apostles needed evidence. They needed multiple sightings. They needed hands-on experience. They needed to touch Jesus' scars. They needed eyewitness, firsthand experience and testimony. This wasn't just something that they had made up and, you know, decided to, like, just spread this false story that they, they made up. And this wasn't just something they decided to believe without any evidence. Jesus' resurrection was something that shocked the disciples and that they struggled to accept but ended up accepting because the physical evidence was overwhelming. They had seen the risen Jesus. They had eaten with the risen Jesus. They had touched the risen Jesus. They had spoken with the risen Jesus. One more piece of evidence and and then I'll be done. Um you need to know that women at this time were considered very, I mean, the, the, the view by men in regards to women was, women was just horrible. Uh, women uh, just were kind of 
just down here for men. And what's very interesting, especially they were not credible at all. They were not credible sources of information. They couldn't give uh, testimony in the, in the Jewish court of law, nor could they in Roman courts. Um, their testimony was considered unreliable. Uh, Jewish rabbinic law held that the testimony of a hundred women was not equal to that of one man. And what we find in the Gospels, in all four of the Gospels, who are the first ones to know about the resurrected Christ and to see the resurrected Christ? It's all women in every single one of those accounts. Now, if the disciples and the writers of the Bible were making up this stuff, making up the story, they would have never placed women as the ones who saw the resurrected Christ. Because it wouldn't be credible. The only way that they would include women in the story in this way is if it were true. The inclusion of women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection is strong evidence that the gospel accounts are true and record actual events. There's no way they would have put them in there like that. You see, the gospel is a message of grace. The gospel is personal, and it is grounded in evidence. Jesus is the champion of the broken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you that it is a message of amazing grace. We also thank you that uh, you want us to experience that grace. And you deal with us as individuals and as uh, people that have individual needs and desires and concerns. Lord, thank you that the way you deal with me is different than the way you deal with the next person and vice versa. The way you dealt with Mary was different than how you dealt with Peter and how you dealt with Thomas. And And we'll see how you've even dealt with the rest of the disciples. We thank you for being that personal God. And Lord, we also are thankful that there is tons of good, solid evidence that makes a fantastic case for the truth of the resurrection. Lord, I pray that if there are people here that are like me and need to see evidence and need to uh, go at this with their minds and their intellect, Lord, I pray that uh, they would investigate. They would investigate the claims, that they would weigh the evidence, Lord. And I pray that through the process, they would see that you are the resurrected king who is resurrecting um, men and women um, in this world to new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.